This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Bichi Perlman, who is an economist at the US Census Bureau. Today we are going to talk about her paper, Cutting the Innovation Engine, How Federal Funding Shocks Affect University Patenting, Entrepreneurship and Publications, which is joined with Tania Babina, Alex Chi He, Sabrina T. Howell, and Joseph Stout. The paper is forthcoming at the Quarterly Journal of Economics. Bitsy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Bitsy, what is the question that this paper studies? So the broader question we had was, how does the source of funding for university researchers affect how they commercialize their outputs and how their career trajectories project? Specifically, we look at how does a decline in federal funding affect how those innovation outputs, uh, again, get commercialized and how the career trajectories for researchers progress. So you say the source of funding, because even though your main shock, as the, as the title says, is in the decrease of federal funding, you will find that there is a little bit of substitution in that as federal funding for researchers goes down, they will substitute and increase their funding from other sources, such as industry funding, correct? So it's both like a, a level and a composition effect. Yes, our main, our main identification is a level effect, but our interest behind it was in thinking about the composition effect of funding. You study this, I mean, the title says it, there are three main uh, measures of uh, innovation outputs that are affected by this level or source of finding. Uh, can you repeat what those are? So the first we look at from census data is the career outcomes of the individuals who are working on these grants. So as an innovation output, we look at high tech entrepreneurship, which we define as working at an age zero company but we also look at other career outcomes. The second, which comes from match data from Umetrics, is their patenting. So looking at, do they engage in this process of contracting an invention to be commercialized later? And then the last, which we're all familiar with, is publications, so scientific publications, which again comes from Umetrics. So you say that you're measuring high-tech entrepreneurship by working at an age zero firm in a specific sector. This is because even in the census, you cannot actually uh, find whether a certain individual is actually employed in a new firm or is the founder and main owner of that firm. But the presumption is that if you are employed in a firm of age zero, you are essentially the founder or, or the co-founder and the, one of the owners, correct? That's correct. Uh, if you want a, a deep dive on finding entrepreneurs in the census, I'm certainly happy to go on that tangent, but I don't think it's relevant here. Uh, but, but this is the proxy. This is the proxy. Suffice it to say, it is very difficult to identify the actual entrepreneurs and something that the literature really struggles with. So this is what we use as our proxy, partially because we think that early employees, even if they are true employees, have different characteristics from later employees that you know, are very entrepreneurial and sort of do many things around the firm in a way that's more similar to starting the firm than it is being a true employee. And in terms of the data set uh, or data sets that you use, economists have 
relatively easy access to data on patents and publications. This has been have been used in, in many papers. I presume that one main innovation of the paper from the access to data perspective is on having access to this like a census bureau data that allows you to study this entrepreneurship variable. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, although I think that the entire data structure that Umetrics has set up, which is extremely innovative of itself. So this is a data structure that allows us to see who is paid on grants at universities. And so then we can track these individuals. And this gives more detail, even though papers, publications, and um, patents were available before, this really links people back to their groups that they're working with and also their funding sources in a way that I think is very innovative in addition to being able to bring this into the census and follow these people uh, throughout their careers. That's right. So I was referring to, uh, I guess, innovation on the left-hand side set of variables, but you're correct that the, the right-hand side is the one in which you need to measure the uh, amount of uh, federal grants or grants from other sources that researchers are uh, obtaining in order to do their research. This, as you said, has been put together by Umetrics. What type of a duration does this data have? Does this include every university in the US? How many researchers take part on this and so on? In our paper, so this, this is a project that is ongoing, this Umetrics data. So within our paper, we have data from about 2000 to about 2017 uh, in different universities are part of it for different uh, parts of it. We have 22 universities, which represent 15% of all federal research money spent. So the group is run out of the University of Michigan. So the University of Michigan was the, the first university and has the longest time series. They also got Ohio State and a number of other large state-funded research universities are the sort of core of the metrics data. And then other uh, universities have come in. They're now, I believe, up to 31 universities. Although when we started working with it, it was only 22. So if I wanted to study the uh, effect that receiving a grant has on the innovation outputs or the different types of innovation outputs for a particular researcher, I could just put these outputs on the left-hand side, say in a panel data set that has researchers and years, put whether the individual got a, a grant in the right-hand side and just run a regression like that, what would be wrong with that regression? Why is it that I will not be able to obtain the causal estimate of a access to federal funding on, say, being a high-tech entrepreneur, patenting more, publishing more, and so on? So we know that researchers' choice of funds is endogenous. That is to say that researchers are going to pick funds based on what they want uh, from their science. So some researchers do research that's very basic and is just simply never going to be patented or commercialized into a high-tech firm. And that kind of research isn't going to be funded by private companies. And so you just won't see that being funded by private companies. If you have you know, a shock to their research funding, they won't have any sort of substitution other researchers are going to you know, think their research is very promising and be interested in entrepreneurial activity and sort of push their research direction that way and also pick their funds in order to help with their entrepreneurial ambitions. 
And so we really need something that removes that choice or affects people only on the margin there because uh, how people pick funds is very tied up in the kind of research they do and their own ambitions for their research. So th this is both from the uh, demand perspective, as you are mentioning, but also from the supply perspective, right? Like uh, you are making the argument in terms of like a, a researcher who may apply for a grant or not apply or may choose to apply for a grant from the federal government or from the industry. And, and her choice may depend on what objectives she has for the grant and so on. But even if she was to apply to all grants, right, the likelihood of getting it might depend on the objectives that are associated with the grant. And therefore, if she's doing basic research, she might be more likely to be more successful with the applications to research funds from the federal government as opposed to from the industry. Uh, yes, of course. The grant suppliers have their own objectives, uh, which comes into play later in the paper and our argument for why we see these movements that we do. So this underlines the fact that you need an empirical strategy in order to uh, isolate this uh, causal effect of uh, being funded by the federal government on these innovation outputs that we have mentioned earlier. What is the empirical strategy? The empirical strategy we use is to look at large idiosyncratic negative shocks to federal funding within narrow, narrow categories. So U.S. federal funding is divided up by a set of codes called the Catalog for Domestic Federal Assistance, CFDA. And these indicate sort of the, the type of funding or the breadth to which this funding is available. For instance, the cancer program at NIH has their own CFDA code. And within the NSF, the social science uh, group within the NSF has their own CFDA code. And so we look at the aggregate funds that are available on these CFDA codes and look for idiosyncratic shocks, that is, one-year shocks that return back to trend in federal funding. And so we figured that researchers that are looking for funds within these categories, because researchers tend to have very sticky research agendas, I think we can all sort of appreciate that thinking about our own lives, go one year to try to get funding, say, from the Cancer Institute at NIH, and they find that just not as much funding is available idiosyncratically for this one year. And so they are much likely to get this, these funds uh, from the federal government. So you're saying these are uh, decreases in the supply of funds within the speciality of a particular researcher, uh, that they are large. Uh, so you have like a certain threshold. Maybe you can vary it or something, but for the baseline regressions, there's a certain threshold of... We use 40%. Yeah, 40%. And idiosyncratic. Why idiosyncratic? Wouldn't it be like typically you want to have shocks that are larger? That's the reason that you put a minimum of 40%, wouldn't you want shocks that are also, in addition to being large from year to year, also last for a, for a long time in order to be able to detect any potential effects? Our interest was in abstracting from technological trends or technological possibilities. So our feeling was that if they, for some reason, we saw that cancer was particularly not promising and Congress thought that researching cancer was going to be a particularly bad investment for the next you know, decade time horizon, that they were going to remove funding from it, 
not because of some idiosyncratic process of budgeting, but because there was a decrease in technological opportunity. So our interest in having these shocks that then revert to trend is to have things that are really due to politics or budget and not long-run technological opportunity. So we always want to understand what is the source of the variation. On the right-hand side, you have mentioned something related to like uh, Congress or the budget and all this. Is it possible to have like a, you know, a, a, an initial stage in which you generate the right-hand side variable uh, by looking at uh, the decision of some bureaucrat that is being measured saying, oh, I don't like cancer so much. I want to give for a year at least some more funds to dementia or, or something along these lines that can serve, if you want, as a, as a first stage for the variation in the decrease in, uh, in federal funding? Yeah, we tried very hard to dig into these shocks that we found to understand what the political source of them were. And even knowing the shock's existence, we actually found it extremely hard to track these things down. These things happen at many levels. You know, so one level is sort of staffers within Congress making up the budgets for the year, which then gets, you know, sort of flattened down in the public discourse to like the $2 trillion reconciliation package. But, you know, that involves a lot of details uh, that sort of staffers and earmarks have come in. But another level is just within the administrative agencies themselves. You know, they get the NIH gets handed a budget and is told, please allocate these among your, your research funds. And so then they also have their own sort of sets of debates every year. Um, and so we had a lot of trouble, as I said, even knowing specifically where the shocks were coming from, understanding uh, what the political motivations for each one of the shocks were. And so there really isn't any sort of centralized source or authoritative source that you can go into to pull this out politically. I know other papers have tried to use looking at the composition of congressional committees. Uh, so if somebody on a particular appropriations committee is from a particular state, which then gets you know funding from something, you might think that uh, funding that's tilted towards Michigan is now going to be more favored because the congressperson from Michigan is on a committee. However, because R&D funding is so well dispersed across the country and so unaffiliated with geographical areas. There really just isn't any sort of systematic thing that we could pull out. So let me outline the, the shape of the data here. So there is like a, all this type of like a re research that it takes place across many different fields. And every field has what you call a CFDA code. This will be like the industry code or the sector code, the code that determines the speciality of the research, right? And then you find that some of these codes re receive uh, negative shocks for a limited time. Specifically, 61 codes are associated with uh, one negative shock and the 210 are not associated with uh, any, any shock. Uh, so they are mostly the, comprise the, the control group. And then you are going to create a panel of individual and years, um, then controlling for individual fixed effect, year fixed effect, essentially the interaction between uh, the individual who is specialized on a specific code and the years after uh, there was a negative shock to that code 
is going to be the basis of your difference in different specification. Is that correct? That's correct. As an aside, you know, this paper started, I looked up before I began this interview, I got pulled into this paper in 2018. So this paper has had a long run um, and has evolved over time. So we actually started out with a different identification strategy, which was a, a shift share strategy before sort of settling on this shock strategy, which we thought uh, was more exogenous uh, than the original shift share, share strategy. But I think at least in terms of thinking through how to think about the CFDA codes, I think the shift share strategy is a, is a nice you know, thought exercise, which is to say a researcher is being paid on a CFDA code and the amount of funding that's available there uh, decreases or increases. And so then their ability to grab more funding there changes. So can you describe the figures that you have looking at uh, how the overall funding for the code and the uh, funding for the researcher who specializes in the code that suffers a negative shock uh, look like? Yeah, so all of our outcomes in the paper are expressed in event study figures. So we have this first event study figure, which we look at the aggregate funding available on these CFDA codes. So we see a very flat pretrend. Uh, where there is no impact on the amount of overall funding available on these CFDA codes. And then at year zero, we see this sharp negative movement in the amount of funding that's available. So it's about 60% uh, decrease in the amount of funds that are available, which makes sense because by construction, we've said we want these shocks that are more than 40% decreases. So it makes sense that it's a bit larger than that. And then a slow return to trend, which by year three, these uh, CFDA codes are back to funding people at their pre-trend levels. So just to be clear, this is not a finding. This is the mechanical result, as you were saying, by construction of how you have defined the shock, right? Like <laughs> this is, this is just the construction of the right-hand side variable. Correct. This is, this, is, yeah. this is us explaining to you the variation that we are using. What happens to the individuals who are specialized in these things? Do, does their funding also recover within three years? So no, their funding doesn't. So they also see this extreme negative drop, although they see it at year one and not at year zero. Uh, and after that drop, they seem to have a little bit of recovery, but not much. And that uh, negative shock is persistent. So for individuals, they have about a 25% decrease in the amount of funding that they are uh, accessing. And that 25% decrease uh, really continues at least out to five years. So I am emphasizing this because it is important for the interpretation that the aggregate temporary shocks are actually permanent for the individuals who are affected by these shocks, correct? Correct. And in other research that I have, we actually look at really explicitly temporary shocks to people's funding. So uh, the shocks that, that we look at in this other paper, again, not to get too much on a tangent, um, are... 30 days and generally less than 180 days. And yet we see really significant changes in people's choice of career based on these things that are explicitly temporary. So I mentioned that it is important for the interpretation. And just as a, like a, a, you know, a, a building block of, of this, let me see whether you disagree with my statement here. 
when I say that the uh, temporary shocks to aggregate funding are permanent for the individual researcher who was specialized in a specific field, this also means that new people are getting that money. That is, they were, you know, if the aggregate levels go back, that means that there is money being distributed overall to potentially other people. This also implies that even though the consequences are terrible for the research specialized on this, it increases the potential entry into the field. So I, I think the way to think about this result where we see a decrease out to five years, and at five years you do see to start to see some, some recovery, is that uh, grant funding is long. And so your impact from either getting or not getting a grant in one year has this sort of lasting effect over time in terms of uh, your ability to fund the next three to five years of your research. And so I think that these negative cuts really do affect everyone in the field who are seeking funds at that moment. And if you happen to be seeking funds uh, the next year, then you don't see that effect and you do see this reversion to trend. But I don't think it implies that new people who aren't the researchers uh, would, who are seeking funds in the year of the shock get that money any more than they would have had there been a steady uh, stream of funding for that time. And you can see this in one of the robustness tests that we do, where we look at whether the impacts of these shocks are really on people who have recently gotten their grants or on whether they're on grants that are expiring. And we see that it's the people whose grants that are expiring, that is to say, the people who will need to be seeking new funds that are driving our results. And so I think you can think of it as taking away from the field as a whole, just in a very particular temporal way. Okay. So as with any like event study or difference in difference specification, as you mentioned in the paper, the identifi identification assumption is that the, uh, the outcome innovation uh, variables of the individuals in the treatment group and control group, that is those on the fields that are affected by these negative temporary shocks and those who are not, will have followed uh, parallel trends uh, without these federal funding shocks. You know, you know, throughout, uh, throughout the paper, the pre-trends, you know, look more or less fine. You know, that indirect test seems to be validated by the data. What is the baseline finding with respect to these three variables that we mentioned, entrepreneurship, patents, and publications? So we find that this decrease in federal funding availability decreases the amount of high-tech entrepreneurship that people who are funded on the CFDGOs engage in. Uh, by 0.818 percentage points, or 80% of the mean, we find an increase in patenting, which pushes the opposite direction in an innovation sense that you would expect of high-tech entrepreneurship. And this increase in patenting is something like 100% of the mean. And we find a decrease in publications. Uh, which reduces the number of publications that a researcher engages in by about 16%. So we find these results that sort of pull in different directions. That is to say, less high-tech entrepreneurship when you decrease federal funding, more patenting, which we again take to be a measure of innovation when you decrease federal funding, 
and less publications, fewer publications, which we take to be a sort of sense that less science is being done or, or less innovation is being done when you decrease federal funding. So three measures of innovation, two of them go down, high-tech entrepreneurship and publications, and one of them goes up, uh, patenting. I am curious about uh, the interpretation of the decrease in the high-tech entrepreneurship. So when I look at the event study graphs, I see that the, the, the likelihood that the individual starts a you know, high-tech firm goes down uh, almost immediately, keeps going down for a while, but it starts going down almost immediately uh, in the year in which the individual receives this negative shock. And I am curious about how you think that these effects uh, should be working from a temporal perspective. So in the control group, obviously, there hasn't been the same decrease in access to funds. So then the researchers have got a grant relative to, to the treatment group. And the finding is that they are more likely to uh, do a startup. But you said earlier that the grants last uh, for many years. I think you said five to seven. Shouldn't they finish the grant first? Or just generally, if the grant is what is uh, allowing the individual to invest in the research and do that high-tech startup, shouldn't there be some time for the research to take place, for the findings to be evaluated, for the prospect of a startup being considered, for the startup being officially incorporated so that you can pick it up in the U.S. Census Bureau data? Like It will seem to me that all these things take a very long time, that there are many stages along this, this causal chain. And that seems a little bit inconsistent with finding that the effects turn up so quickly uh, in your figures. Yeah, so grants generally last three to five years. And within a lab structure, you generally have uh, an individual or set of individuals who are running the lab who have a set of grants that they're then using to pay people who are staffing that lab. So perhaps other research scientists who are people uh, with PhDs, uh, but don't have faculty positions or, or have soft money faculty positions. Uh, you have postdocs and graduate students and other technical staff in the lab. And so the way we're envisioning the timing working with these results is that in a specific year when they need to get more money on these grants uh, or because one of their grants is sort of coming due, is expiring, uh, they aren't able to re-up that grant. And so that this impacts the choices of what the staff in the lab are doing. So... I think that within the lab, there's sort of always a pressure to move on to other things for the staff in the lab. So uh, if they're going to be working on a high-tech startup, this is something that is sort of a constant pressure that, that's boiling over time. And their choice then is going to be impacted by the availability of funding in that one year. You know, in that one year, are they able to continue on their PI's grants to continue fomenting this startup idea or are they pushed off to another lab to do different things? Are they pushed into thinking about themselves trying to get grant funding rather than uh, focusing on doing their startup? Or are they pushed into trying to get some sort of job in industry, uh, which then forecloses their ability to start up? 
Now, you say that the results appear pretty quickly, and it's true. You do see negative effects starting in year one, but you really don't see the effects uh, coming in until, you know, maxing out until year four, which I think makes sense given the life cycle of graduate students and postdocs in a lab that if they have the startup idea that is sort of nascent and they've been working on supported by the lab, that this then lack of availability of funds you know, has some effect in the first year because some of those researchers would have had a more mature idea that they would have been ready to go with in that first year. But many of the, the effects you wouldn't see until year two, three, or four uh, because that's how long it takes them to sort of turn this into an actual startup. How do the effects vary by the occupation of the researcher? So we see that the startup effects are primarily driven by the postdocs, uh, research scientists, and graduate students who are going to be people who don't have permanent positions in this lab and are much freer to uh, go on to other things. Whereas we see that the patenting effects are driven by, again, faculty, as well as the graduate students, postdocs, and research scientists. So by all the people who are sort of actively doing research in the lab. And the publication effects are really driven by the faculty. That is to say, people who we expect to have long-term careers in publishing, although we do see some effect there with the graduate students, postdocs, and research scientists. What other type of like heterogeneity uh, do you explore in the results? So we did some exploration by field of research and found that our results really were driven by the hard sciences and engineering, which is where you would expect uh, these to be coming. And then we looked at the quality of the things that were produced. So we, we don't have a measure of quality for high-tech entrepreneurship, but we do have a number of measures of quality for both patents and publications. So our hypothesis is that uh, we're going to see people moving away from more basic research to more applied research. And so within patents, we see that low generality patents uh, and low citation patents really are the ones that see the increase, uh, whereas high generality patents, that is to say patents that are cited by a number of different fields, don't really see an effect. And high citation patents don't really see an effect. So we take this to mean that if an idea is really, really good or really, really innovative, that regardless of the source of funds, the researchers are going to engage in the process of patenting it anyways. We also look at where the papers are published. So we looked at whether they're published in low or high impact journals on average, um, and whether they're low or high citation publications, and whether they are uh, publications that are more applied or more basic. And we find that it's really the high impact, high sight, and basic publications that are affected. And so that people that are being pushed away from publishing are being pushed away from this sort of higher impact uh, open science towards doing something that is maybe more applied and more marginal in terms of, and perhaps less risky uh, in terms of the uh, publication that's produced. So throughout, you have as a main like a hypothesis or, or, or conclusion that it's not just the decrease in overall funding, but the substitution away from one source and into another source that is away from federal and into industry that is generating most of these results. 
But do you have evidence of that? Do you have uh, evidence that the industry funding reacts to at least partially compensate for the decrease in the federal funding? Yeah, so we have event studies that show the share of both federal and private funding that these researchers get. And so we see, as one might expect, that after this uh, shock, there's this significant decrease of the availability of federal funds uh, that's persistent out to five years. But we also see uh, particularly appearing in year two, and so not uh, smooth in the way that the federal funding is, but, but a little bit jumpier, that there is this real increase in private funds. And so for every dollar of federal funds lost, we find that the researchers are able to acquire about 10 cents of private funding for every dollar of federal funding that's lost. So you have three potential mechanisms that might be explaining all the combination of findings that you have uh, and the discussion as to why your data seems to be more or less consistent with some of these mechanisms. What are they and how do you interpret which one seems more plausible here? We hypothesize three different ways that the source of funding might affect people's research outputs. One is through generalized research productivity due to simple decline in funding. And we'd expect that if there were just an overall decline in productivity, that all three outputs that we see would go down. Um, however, we see that patents go up, and this contradicts the idea that there's simply a decline in researcher productivity. So let me, let me caveat here uh, a little bit something what you are saying, which is that the increase in patents, which is the one measure of uh, research productivity that goes up, doesn't really go up that much because these are all like low citation, low generally patents that, you know, yes, quantitatively, there is a higher number of patents, but it doesn't really add up to that much. I, I say in numbers, the uh, increase in patenting is actually quite sizable. But you're right to, to point out that, in fact, in the sense of like, how is this as a measure of productivity? It is the low generality, low citation patents, less useful patents that do see this fairly significant increase in numbers. So if you had, instead of the number of patents, you had the total number of citations generated by the patents of the researcher, regardless of whether they come from more patents with less citations or very few uh, patents with a lot of citations, what would you find if you were to put the total number of citations on the left-hand side? If, if we were to think that, you know, what matters, the actual research productivity is citations, as opposed to, you know, the quantity of the output that potentially generates citations, what would you find there? Or this is something that you did not explore in the paper. Uh, so we, we didn't explore in the paper, but if I had to hypothesize, the extensive margin there would dominate uh, the intensive margin if we were looking at number of citations, because we do see a very substantial number of, or a very substantial increase in these lower citation patents, but the lower citation patents doesn't mean that they aren't achieving any citations. Um, and we don't see any decrease in the high citation patents. So we see only increases and no decreases. Okay, sorry. So that was potential mechanism number one. What about number two? 
So the second mechanism that we consider is that perhaps certain funding uh, prefers more basic research or more applied research, which is something that I'd previewed earlier in the conversation. And we would expect that if the lack of federal funding pushes people to do more applied research, that we would see more of the things that we consider applied, that is to say high-tech entrepreneurship and patents, and fewer of the things that we consider basic, that is to say publications. However, that isn't what we see. We, in fact, see a decrease in high-tech entrepreneurship paired with an increase in patenting. And these results really are, I think, the primary tension in our paper, that these things you would always expect in some sort of understanding of innovation and understanding of basic and appliedness to move together, and they move differently in our paper. And so we think that while researchers probably are pushed either in a a more basic or more applied uh, direction, as we see with the publications, when they lose federal funding, it's the basic publications that seem to be lost out. There also has to be something else going on that explains this uh, decrease in high-tech entrepreneurship that isn't simply about whether the work they're working on is more applied. The last effect, and the one that we really think is driving the results here, is how the appropriation of the research outputs is happening. So we know that when people get grants with the federal government, there is a a standard understanding that they enter into with the federal government where the universities are free to patent results that come out uh, for their own potential commercialization. This is driven by the the Bayh-Dole Act in the 1980s. And the government really seeks to sort of spur private industry to run with the things that it has funded uh, and commercialize them itself. Meanwhile, when people get uh, grants from private sources, these sources also come with contracts. And these contracts often involve rather complex and lengthy negotiations about what is going to be done with the research outputs that uh, come out of these interactions. And many of the contracts demand that the funder of the researcher is granted the patent, uh, has the right of first refusal before results are submitted for publication, um, or otherwise is able to use the research outfits for their own devices. And so we believe that when researchers are pushed to private funding, that what happens is that the research outputs are then appropriated by the private funders. This explains the decrease in high-tech entrepreneurship because uh, the people who under a federal grant would have been free to start their own firm are no longer free to use these ideas to start a new firm and rather the firm that is sponsoring the research wants these ideas to commercialize them themselves. Um, They are pushed to engage in more patenting because patenting is this intellectual property, this actual piece of property that the funder then can take and use to appropriate research outputs and engage in fewer publications because this is not something that researchers value or or industry funders value because it is open science and not something that they can take and commercialize. We also find that graduate students and postdocs who work on these industry-sponsored grants are much more likely than chance to go themselves work for their sponsors. And so they are in some sense appropriating the human capital of the grants 
And we see in the patent assignment that these patents are assigned to the funders. So in terms of the policy implications of uh, these findings, it seems that a, a natural conclusion will be, well, if you want to uh, generate research that creates externalities, clearly federal uh, funds are going to be much more effective than uh, industry funds. And to the extent that we believe that there is not enough research being generated that creates externalities, maybe the policy prescription should be, let's increase the federal funds. But of course, that comes with cost because that's expensive to the taxpayer and so on and so forth. But one thing that in some sense the uh, use of your uh, instrument or source of variation underlines is that uh, predictability is very important, right? That having the same level of funding uh, average over time is going to be much more effective if there are there is no variation from year to year that makes some researchers that need to, to continue their grants or get new grants because their previous have expired to just uh, you know not being able to continue their contracts, especially if they are postdocs or graduate students, uh, and then eventually like exit the industry. I mean, e exit uh, maybe the academic world, w start to work for the industry, and so on and so forth. I think that one of the things that dominates the doing of science, at least uh, in the current environment in America right now, is this uncertainty over funding. If you talk to scientists, they will tell you that much of their life is consumed by worrying about uncertainty over funding, both as faculty who are running labs, who maybe are not concerned for their own salaries, and for the much more extensive research workforce that they're employing that are reliant on these uncertain grants. And so I think that there are many, many ways of which this paper is just a, a small piece of evidence um, to understand that this uncertainty dominates science and uh, is, if not detrimental, because we don't know about the impacts of competition on people's ability to produce high edge, you know, cutting edge science, definitely detrimental on the research workforces. Um, mental health and, and levels of, of stability. Is there anything else that we have not uh, quite covered here? We can think about the importance of having more spillovers and so having more federal funding to increase the amount of spillovers so people are able to take uh, their research approach and commercialize it themselves. And certainly there is evidence that research is best commercialized in small, young, nimble firms that are able to adapt. But we also might think that some research is better commercialized by having a large amount of capital behind it. And so we can't really say that uh, one source of funding is better or worse for innovation as a whole because it really just changes the way it's going to be commercialized. So if it's research that really needs a depth of capital behind it, which we can think of the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, Pfizer really being able to pour a bunch of money into doing its own clinical trials. Uh, that was a very good way for that to be commercialized with very little, uh, you know, public funding sort of impact to the, the taxpayer, as opposed to Moderna, which had to have a huge amount of money 
from NIH in order to produce its clinical trials, you know, but on the, the other side, we got sort of a young, nimble company commercializing this. And so I think it's non-obvious what this says about the overall advantages for innovation for society, just that different kinds of things are going to benefit uh, from being commercialized different ways. And your choice of funding is going to really influence how things get commercialized. Thank you, Bitsy, for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we may have discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. All views expressed are my own and not those of the U.S. Census Bureau, and all results described have been reviewed for unauthorized disclosure of confidential information.